Awesome. I have the privilege of getting to share with you again today. We started a series last week called Gospel Truth. And what we're doing is we're looking at various angles of the gospel message. When we say gospel, we of course understand that gospel is a word that means good news or good tidings from scripture. And I just got to say, if you were here last week and you made it back today, I commend you. The reason why is because last week was like the day where we dealt with the bad news that leads us into the good news of the gospel. And if you were here, you watched online, you'll remember that last week we talked about how the gospel is a confrontation. The gospel confronts us in our sinfulness and it confronts us in our complacency. And so we dealt with those topics and we really just established this idea that I can't understand the good news of the gospel unless I understand the bad news of my sinful condition as a human being. Again, we spent a lot of time talking about bad news. So if you got through last week and you made it back today, congratulations. I commend you. I'm grateful that you are here today so that we can jump into the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, last week when I got done with the message, I asked my wife, I said, Ash, did that come off like a little bit harsh? And she says, why did you think it was harsh? And I said, I just preached an entire message about confrontation and talked about how we're all lost and broken and dying in our sin. A lot of bad news. But the good news is Jesus came to redeem us from our sin. Anybody grateful for that today? So again, last week we talked about how the gospel is a confrontation. Today we're going to talk about how the gospel is an invitation. One of the things that we talked about at the beginning of the message last week is that for many of us, all we see the gospel as being is a doorway through which we walk to enter into salvation. I received this message. I heard this message. It appealed to my heart. It's like God did something that identified with my spirit, and I entered into this salvation process, if you will, through the gospel. And that's all true. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that means to receive that invitation today but a couple specific aspects of the invitation. Now, before we go forward, I want to talk about invitations for just a minute, if I can. First of all, anytime any one of us get an invitation in the mail, we get an invitation via email, somebody puts a card that is an invitation in our hands, we have to stop and recognize that the invitation tells us two things. Number one, the invitation is always a reflection of the kindness of the person who's doing the inviting. Does that make sense to everybody? Because here's the deal, they might be having a party, a gathering, a celebration, but I have absolutely no right to be there unless I have been invited. So the invitation is a reflection of the kindness of the one who's doing the inviting. Not only that, that invitation is also a reflection of how much they value our relationship. And I think the first one is probably more important. It's a reflection of their kindness. But it also shows how much they value our friendship. If they did not value that relationship, they would not invite me to their gathering or to their celebration, okay? So that's the first thing about the invitation that I want to establish. But the second thing that's important to establish is this. With every, just about every invitation I've ever received from anybody to any gathering or celebration, at the very bottom of that invitation, it had something very important that required something of me, and it's called RSVP. You guys, you guys have gotten the invitation before, right? You've been invited somewhere, haven't you? Okay. So there's something that is required of me in the RSVP that means that I have to reserve my place. I've been invited, but I have to indicate to them that I am taking my place when it comes to the invitation that they, or this place and this thing that they've invited me to. 
And today, as we talk about the gospel being an invitation, I hope that by, we, by the time we get to the end of the message, every single one of us will have given our, our RSVP into the kingdom of God. What I mean by that is this, God extends the invitation, but not everybody is taking their place in his gathering, in the kingdom of God. I want to be one of those people that takes my place, that takes God up on his invitation and says, God, I want everything that you have for me in this great kingdom party that you are planning. So the gospel, my friends, is an invitation. If you got your Bible this morning, meet me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to talk today about two specific angles of salvation that the gospel invites us into, okay? The first word, the first thing we're going to focus on this morning is the gospel invites us into reconciliation. Everybody say reconciliation. The gospel invites us into reconciliation. And this is a pretty familiar passage of scripture here at the bridge, 2 Corinthians 5, because whether you knew this or not, this is the passage from which we get our mission statement, connecting people with God, connecting people with people. It comes from 2 Corinthians 5. Let's read starting in verse 17. Therefore, Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. And again, last week we talked about bad news, that in, on our own, we have been separated from God because of our sin. And that goes back to after the creation narrative, we see Adam and Eve fall, which gives us this sinful nature through which we inherit these sinful tendencies. But then all of us in our own lives, we tend to choose our own will over God's, and it's our own sinfulness that separates us from God. We have to be reconciled back to God. But of course, the gospel by definition is good news, and the good news today is that anyone who is in Christ can leave the old stuff behind and step into the new stuff that God has for your life. We can be reconciled, and that's good news. Let's look at now at verse 18. Paul says, now all things are of God who has reconciled us, there's that word again, reconciled us to himself. Hmm, God reconciling us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry or the word of reconciliation. So let's just talk for a minute about what it means to be Reconciled. When you go back and you see this word reconciled or reconciliation in the original manuscript, in the Greek, it's the word katalage, which means it's a financial or an accounting term, and it means an adjustment of a difference. So in other words, you could have two balances sitting next to each other. One balance is a balance of a debtor, and the other one is the one who was owed something. So that's a picture of two accounts needing to be reconciled. But let's back up for a moment. Because in order for reconciliation to be necessary, there has to be a difference or a division between the two parties. Or, more specifically, there must be a difference between the two accounts. Now, if we look again at verse 18, what we just read, this is what it says again. Now, all things are of God who has reconciled us. So there was a difference between God's account and my account. And God has reconciled us to himself. How? Through Jesus Christ. Paul's writings here indicate that the divide that existed was between God and me, me and God, you and God, God and you. And again, last week we established that good news is only good when we understand bad news. Of course, what was that bad news? That we're sinners. 
We are lost in our sinfulness. We are unable to save ourselves. And that sinfulness has separated us from God. That is what has created the difference in my account and God's account. In other words, the reconciliation that needed to take place, according to Paul, was between God and us because of our sins. Now, if that's bad news, then what's the good news? Again, the good news is God has reconciled us back to himself through Jesus. Now, many of you, you hear that word reconciliation. You're like, okay, Zach, I get it. I've been walking with God for a long time. I think I understand what it means to have this relationship restored between me, a sinful human being, and God who is perfect and righteous. I think I understand that. But I want to dig a little bit deeper here on a very human level. Because the truth is, reconciliation sounds good in theory, but it's not always so easy in practice. Can somebody say amen? Because sometimes we get burned. Guess what? Sometimes we burn others. Sometimes we're the offender. Sometimes we're the one who's been offended. Reconciliation sounds nice in theory, but it's not always easy in practice. If you go on and you read verse 19 of 2 Corinthians 5, this is what it says. That God was in Christ reconciling the world, or us, back to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. Stop again right there. That word imputing goes hand in hand with this word reconciliation because, again, it's an accounting or a financial term. In other words, when Christ came to this earth, God was not racking up the account of our sins to hold it against us. He was in Christ, in the world, reconciling us back to, our, back to him. What an amazing God that we serve. And it goes on finally and it says, and God has committed to us the word or the message or the ministry of reconciliation. So let's take this idea of reconciliation and put it on a very human level. When I've been offended or wronged by someone else, what does reconciliation usually look like? If I've been offended or wronged by somebody else in a relationship, what does reconciliation usually look like? See, if someone has wronged me, usually I will wait for them to be the one to make it right. Anybody else? I mean, let's just be honest for a minute. If somebody has done me wrong, I'm not crossing the aisle to see how it is that I can apologize to them because I ain't got anything to apologize for. You've wronged me. I'm not getting up out of this chair. If you want to make it right, you can get up and come to me and talk to me and apologize. Why? Because I didn't do anything wrong. You did. And that's usually the attitude that most of us have when we're the one who has been offended. Not only that, but if I feel that I've been wronged, I can easily become stubborn and even become hard-hearted toward my offender, willing to let the relationship, listen to this, willing to let the relationship die if they don't make it right because they have wronged me. Isn't that usually the attitude that we take when somebody has wronged us? I ain't fixing the problem. You fix it. You're the one that created it in the first place. Amazing how reconciliation sounds nice, but not always so easy in practice. And how many of our relationships fall apart because of offenses that are never reconciled? And I want you to think about this personally for a moment here. Because before we even talk about this level between us and God, that relationship, just think about how difficult it is to reconcile a relationship where real hurt has taken place in your life. Can you think of somebody in your life that was once very, very close to you? You loved that person. You valued their friendship, their relationship. You valued them so much and then something happened that created a division. There was an offense that went one way or the other. And as a result, that relationship was never the same or there was never a relationship again at all. Often that's what happens. 
When this happens, it's usually because we feel justified to stay in our place of offense because after all, we are right and they are wrong. And even though we may remain in our rightness or our righteousness, if you will, we've lost the relationship. And it puts us at this place where we have a decision to make when it comes to the relationship. Do I value being right or do I value the relationship? In other words, we value being right more than we value the relationship. And that's what's difficult about reconciliation. But now let's put the shoe on the other foot. What about when we are the ones who have done the offending? I mean, let's just be honest for a minute. Right there for a minute, you're all thinking, yep, I've never wronged anybody. It's only people wronging me. I've been the one that's wronged other people. I've made huge mistakes. I've crossed people, burned people. Things have happened. I've been the one who's been the offender, if you will. So what happens when I'm the one who's the offender? If I have wronged someone else, I can sometimes be slow in owning up to my mistakes. I can stand in my stubbornness and my pride and let a relationship die because I refuse to humble myself and admit three very powerful words. I was wrong. Funny how difficult those words are to cough up sometimes, but amazing how powerful they are when we're willing to do it. I was wrong. I made a mistake. I messed up. It's on me. I can't point the finger anymore. I just have to own it. I made a mistake. Those are three powerful words that if we can learn them, we'll find healing and it can initiate reconciliation. What about this? Have you ever made a mistake so big that you were just too embarrassed or ashamed to admit that you were wrong. Sometimes that's why we're unwilling to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Because of that embarrassment or the humility that is required, you distance yourself and you chose to remain in your guilt rather than make it right. I can't come face to face with the person that I've offended. I feel too guilty, I feel too ashamed, and rather than fess up to it, I would rather remain here in my guilt and not even have to deal with it. Sometimes we can even know that what we did was wrong, but because of our pride and our stubbornness, we're unwilling to go to the other party and make it right. And again, quite often, this is how we as human beings handle offenses in our sinful humanity. But watch this. Those two levels we talked about right there are how we handle offenses when reconciliation needs to take place. When we've been offended or we're the ones who have done the offending. With all that said, let's go back to Scripture and see the way that God handles offenses and in order in order to initiate reconciliation again verse 19 god was in christ reconciling the world to himself you see the good news of the gospel is that the offended god came to his offenders us in the person of jesus christ and not only initiated the reconciliation but paid the price that would cover the cost of our offenses even though he didn't commit the offense we sit back sometimes in our earthly human relationships and we think well if you want this thing to be okay then you better fix it because you're the one that made the mistake or sometimes we're the offender and we're unwilling to admit what we've done wrong Sometimes we can even get to a place where we lie to ourselves and we justify what we did knowing full well that it's okay and we keep telling ourselves that lie over and over and over again to the point that we actually believe it and reconciliation never takes place. 
But the beauty of the gospel is that when God looked down and saw that there was a divide between him and us because of our sinfulness, he didn't wait for us, the offenders, to make it right because he knew we could not pay that price. What did he do to initiate reconciliation? He came to us and said, I know I didn't do anything wrong, but I'm coming to you because I want to show you just how much I value this relationship. See, we said earlier that sometimes what we do is we value being right over the relationship. See, I know that God himself is always right and he is always just, but he doesn't stay there in his stubbornness. He comes over here and says, as much as I value my righteousness, I equally value this relationship I have with you. So guess what? I'm crossing the divide and I'm going to be the one to reconcile this thing because I long to be in relationship with you. And that, my friends, is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's amazing how God handles offenses and divisions differently than humanity does. And before we move on to the next thing, I know when I said that, my friends, is the good news of the gospel, you're like, awesome, amen, let's go home. One more thing, two more things. God handles offenses so much better than human beings do. And I want to talk for just a couple of moments about offenses before we move on to the second part of this message, okay? A couple thoughts on offense. When Jesus was teaching his disciples and preparing them for everything that was in front of them, Jesus made a statement to them one day, and I believe you can actually find this in Luke 17 or 18. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, guys, I'm just going to tell you this ahead of time. Be prepared because offenses will come. In other words, there are people that are going to hate you for what you stand for. Now, that's just one form of offense. But listen, in life, there are many kinds of offenses that get thrown at us all the time. Anybody agree? I mean, it seems like you turn on cable news and everybody's looking for something to be offended about. That's the world that we live in. And here's the point I want to make. When Jesus said offenses will come, the word offenses in the Greek in the original writings, many of you will know this teaching, the word offense in the original writings is the word scandalon, which is a trap, a lure, or a snare. And this is what it means. It means that every time an offense is thrown out there, it's like Satan is throwing bait out there looking to see if I will put my foot in it. Because the offense is a trap. And here's the thing you have to catch. For a lot of people in the world today, offense becomes their identity because we see ourselves as victims. And if I can see myself as a victim, it becomes my identity, and there's kind of like this righteousness that gets attached to it in the world in which we live, where I've been wronged, and somebody owes me something in order to make it right, and I stay right there, and I'm always in that place of being a victim. And Scripture says that offense is a trap, that if I put my foot in it, I get stuck right there. Now watch this. If offense is a trap, scandalon being the original word in the Greek, if offense is a trap, then the thing that happens when I choose to be offended is I take on this victim mentality and the world and life moves forward for everybody else except for me because I'm still stuck right here in this identity of being offended. Jesus looked at his disciples and said, guys, get ready. Offenses are going to come. Can I tell you guys? Offenses are going to come. You know why? Because we live in a fallen, broken world and offenses are going to happen. It's just going to happen. And we say that, I know some people hear it, and you're like, but Zach, you don't understand what happened to me, and you're right. I don't. I don't know what happened. You say, Zach, are you saying that I don't have a right to feel the way I do about this thing that happened to me? Oh, no. You have every right in the world to feel the way that you do. And not only that, I'll do my best to sympathize and say that sometimes things happen to us in this life that bring about offenses or hurts or divisions, and you know what? They're incredibly hurtful. You have every right to feel the way that you do, but guess what? 
Jesus says the defenses are going to come, and if I put my foot in the trap, that becomes my identity, and I'm stuck there. But God, because of his goodness and his grace, made a way that I don't have to accept the identity of being offended. I can move forward, and I can overcome things that happen to me and come my way. We don't have to allow offense and victimhood to become our identity. Yes, stuff happens in life, because guess what? We live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. Things are going to happen. Offenses are going to come. But listen to me. Don't put your foot in the trap. Say, well, how do we know that? Why do we know that? Because God was the ultimate one who was offended in this story of reconciliation. We're the offenders. He's the one who's been offended. Why? Because our sin and his righteousness, our sin enters into this picture, and God looks at it and says, no, 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 no. But yet God in his goodness doesn't wait for us to try to fix the problem. He sees that we can't. He comes to us, and he does the reconciling. It's a picture of God choosing not to stay in a position of offense. He says, I'm not going to get stuck there. Am I righteous? Yes, absolutely. But because I love you so much, I also value the relationship. I'm coming to you, and I'm bringing reconciliation. You see today, my friends, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we can be reconciled to God even though we're the ones who have done the offending. He loves us so much that from a place of righteousness, he reaches down and reconciles us because he values the relationship that much. Anybody else grateful for the gracious God that we serve? All right, so the first thing we talked about today is how the gospel is an invitation into reconciliation. But the second thing I want to talk about today is how the gospel is an invitation into justification. Justification. Now, both of these pictures, reconciliation and justification, are really things that God wants to do in our life through this process of salvation. And there's so many other things. We could talk about atonement. We could talk about redemption, sanctification, glorification. I mean, there's so many things to be said about what God does in salvation. But I really felt strongly to talk about these two things today. Because when we hear the word justification, it's a word that makes us think of justice, being justified, and what that looks like in our relationship with God. Go with me to the New Testament book of Titus. Paul writes to his co-laborer in the ministry, Titus. And in chapter 3, he says something very interesting. This is Titus 3, 3 through 7. Watch this. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That's the bad news. That's what we talked about last week. The gospel confronts us in all of that stuff. So what about the good news? Verse 4. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy... He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That having been justified, everybody say justified. Having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs. Everybody say heirs. Man, that's an important word. Having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, let's take a moment and talk about what does it mean to be justified? Because usually justification is demanded by the one who feels as though they've been dealt with unjustly. But when we talk about this picture of being justified before God, the picture here is that we, again, as fallen, sinful human beings, give an account of our life to God. And if all I have to give to God is unrighteousness and sinfulness, how could I possibly be justified? 
I mean, it's quite a question to ask, right? I mean, what I think about is I think about the person who goes to court and they are on trial and they know with everything inside of them that I have nothing good, nothing right or righteous to present. All I have is the conviction in my heart that I'm wrong. And my hope is that on the other side of this trial, I'll be acquitted, I'll be let go, I'll be found innocent, and we have no no innocence to bring to the trial. And that's the big question about justification, is how is it that God can justify us when we have no righteousness or goodness to give to him? It's an amazing work of God. Now, let's pause right here for just a moment in this question as we talk about justification, because I want to ask you another big question. One of the classic theological debates and and really apologetic debates that you get into with a lot of Christians, people who, you know, many, sometimes many who are Christians and often many who are not will ask this big question and it really questions the character of God. The question is this, how could a loving God send people to hell? Anybody ever heard that question? How many of you ever asked that question? Nothing wrong with asking. It's a pretty legitimate question. How could a loving God send anybody off to eternal damnation? Well, what we see in Scripture is that God is loving and gracious over here, but he's also just over here, meaning that he's fair and he's balanced and he always gets it right. There is no wrong in him. There is no evil in him. There is no maliciousness in God. So with that said, go with me to Romans 3, okay? This is the last passage of Scripture we're going to look at. Romans chapter 3. Paul spends multiple chapters at the beginning of Romans talking about this idea of justification. And by the way, from a scriptural perspective, being justified before God really means it's just as if we had never sinned. The word literally means to be acquitted. Just as if we had never sinned. So if I don't have anything good to give to God, how could I possibly be acquitted? Now look at this, Romans 3. Verse 23, we know this one well. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 24 says, But being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And then finally, look at verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just. Everybody say just. And justifier. Everybody say justifier. Of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Now, from that passage, there are three words I want to point out that help us to understand the character of God, all right? The first word is grace. I've grown up in church and heard this word grace all my life, and the most common definition that I've heard given to grace, and it's accurate, is that grace is unmerited favor. Anybody heard that? It's favor from God, but it's unmerited. I don't deserve it. I couldn't earn it. There's nothing I could do to obtain his favor. He gives it to me in an unmerited fashion. But here's the thing you got to catch about this idea of justification. If all I have to bring is my sinfulness to God, I I don't deserve his grace. Now, I've heard it said that mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve. Right? Romans 3 says all have sinned. Romans 6 says that the wages of sin is, that's what I deserve. That's the penalty. Death is the penalty that's hanging over my head because of my sin. But God somehow justifies me, and it's an act of grace. Now again, mercy is when I don't get what I do deserve, which is death. But grace is when God gives me what I don't deserve. Not just unmerited favor, but we go on earlier up in the passage that we read in Titus, and it says that we become heirs 
of God. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus, the sinless, spotless, perfect son of God, the one who deserves to inherit all the goodness of God, is an heir alongside me, and I get to inherit all of God's goodness just like Jesus. That, my friends, is an act of grace. And it reveals the character and the nature of God. So Romans 3 paints a picture. How could God be just by giving me something that I don't deserve and justifying me? Because God, number one, is gracious. But watch the second word. I love this picture. It goes on and it says that he is just. It's important to, to, to notice that God is a just God and a just judge. He's even-handed. His scales are always balanced. He shows no partiality or favoritism, and he delights in justice being served. God never gets it wrong when it comes to justice. And we hear that and we think, wow, but we live in such an unjust world, Zach. I mean, it seems like injustice is all around us, and people are always victims of injustice. And can I tell you what the answer to that is? Yes, that's right. We see injustice happening all around us, and we shouldn't be surprised because God is not ruling over our land and our nation. People are, and we have imperfect people trying to presume justice in imperfect matters. In other words, we're trying to make two wrongs into a right. We shouldn't be surprised when injustice happens in the land in which we live because we live in a fallen world. But when it comes to the justice of God, this is the thing we have to see. Sometimes we can cry out to God and say, God, we live in such an unjust world, but can I be honest with you? If we got God's justice, none of us would be happy because the wages of sin is... So if God is just, how could I possibly be justified if all that I have is this sinful human form? And that's what brings us to this third word I want to highlight. God is both just and, number three, justifier. Not only is God a God of justice and truth, but he is simultaneously a God who demands justice while justifying us in our sinfulness. And I want you to catch this, because... We see that righteousness is given to us as an act of God, and that's what makes us justified. But when we see this picture of God being just and a justifier, I want you to catch this. It's as if our lives are sitting in the courtroom of heaven, and God, the most true, honorable, moral justice, is sitting on the throne up there, and he's the judge presiding over our case. And all we have to bring to the table is our guilt. But here's the beauty of it. When scripture says that God was in the world reconciling us, not imputing our sins, it's a picture of God sending Jesus to this earth. So while God is a righteous judge, guess what? Jesus is our defense attorney. And he justifies us. He goes and he says, no, 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 Father, I've paid the price. And God accepts his payment for our sins so that when God, the honest judge, looks at us sitting behind the defendant's table, he doesn't see us sitting behind the table. He sees Jesus standing in front of it saying, everything they've done wrong, put it on me. They don't deserve it. They couldn't earn it. But I'm making them just because of what I have done. And the picture we have to see is that justification happens not because God justifies us in our sinfulness. He justifies us in Christ's righteousness. Which is why Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. And guess what, my friends? It doesn't matter what you have did. It doesn't matter where you've been, what you did, or what's happened in the past. All of that can be wiped away, and you can walk into all the new things that God has for your life. Because when you are in Christ, you are justified by his righteousness. And we hear that, and we think, wow. Yes, I'm excited about that, too. 
we hear that and we think, wow, so God is just, but yet he lets me, sinful Zach, slide somehow. How could this be? Because all of it is a revelation of the grace and the goodness of God. And if we catch that, we'll receive everything that he has for us because it shows us that not only is he righteous, he'll never compromise his righteousness, but he values this relationship so much that he will justify us because of what Jesus did for us at the cross. We could spend so much time here because I got a lot of my heart to talk about when it comes to this picture of being justified, but I want to tell you a story in closing this morning. I was reading a Bible commentary and preparing for this message a few days ago, and I came across this story by a Bible commentator named Warren Wiersbe. And maybe you've heard of him if you know Bible commentaries, but he told this story, and I had to read this story like three times in order to get it. He told this story about how there was a man in, I believe, like in the 1940s or 50s, and he was living in England. He was a very wealthy man, and he owned a Rolls Royce. And this man decided that he was going to go on vacation to another part of Europe. So the man flies off to a vacation spot and actually has his Rolls Royce shipped to him on a boat. So he has this grand, you know, monstrosity that is this Rolls Royce shipped to him, the spectacle that is his Rolls Royce shipped to him on his European vacation. And he gets to the other side of the continent, and a couple days later his car arrives. And they take his car, they deliver it off of the boat, he comes to pick it up and drive it away. And within a few minutes he begins to realize that something is wrong with my car. It's not right. Something's happened. I'm not sure what it is. I don't know how to fix it. I can't fix it. I, I don't know. I don't know what to do, but I just know that something's not right. Something isn't the same. So the story goes that the man sends a cable back to London, and he reaches out to the Rolls-Royce company, and he says, something's wrong with my car, and I wanted to come back to you because you are the guys that manufactured it. And much to his surprise, just a few moments later, he gets a cable back saying, from the Rolls-Royce company saying, we're sending a mechanic to you right now, don't worry. And he's blown away. He's like, they're sending a mechanic to me. They're not going to refer somebody. They're not going to do this. They're not going to do that. They're just sending somebody to me at their cost and at their expense to come and fix my car. And so later on that day, a man arrives to you know, look at and try to fix and repair the Rolls-Royce. And within a few moments of looking at it and working on it, the thing is running like new again and everything's okay. And the man who owns this very valuable car looks at the mechanic and says, I can't believe it. You fixed it. I don't even know what you did. I don't even know what happened, but somehow everything's okay. And he looks at the mechanic and he says, what do I owe you? The mechanic says, don't worry about it. And the man says, no, no, no. I know how much the car costs and I'm sure it's really expensive to fix. What I'm asking is, how much do I owe you? The man says, don't worry about it. And intentionally walks away, goes back to the airport, gets on an airplane and goes home. The man continues on his vacation, wondering the whole time, am I going to get home and there'll be this bill that arrives in the mail telling me that I owe a bunch of money for the repairs to my car? So he sends a letter off to the Rolls-Royce company and he says, it was amazing how you guys came and fixed my car. This guy did such great work. I'm even amazed that you sent somebody to me at your own expense. How could you do that? Why would you do that? I just got to ask, what do I owe you? few days later, he gets a letter back in the mail from the Rolls-Royce company saying, sir, we have no reports of there ever being anything wrong with a Rolls-Royce. And he thought to himself, ah, they're just trying to look out for their reputation. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I had to read that story three times to get it. Because that man was probably sitting there thinking, I don't know if I'm the one who's to blame for what happened to the car. It, it could be my fault. 
they might try to charge me some extraordinary amount of money that I'm unwilling to pay. Maybe it's not going to make sense. I, I, I couldn't have fixed it myself. I had to go back to the creator, though, because they're the only ones who probably know how to fix it right. And at their own expense, they came and solved the problem, reconciling the issue as if it had never happened. See, when we come to God in our sinfulness, we come to him and we say, God, I can't fix this. And in all reality, it's my fault. When we go to the creator, not somebody who's going to make the problem worse, when we go back to the creator, he knows exactly who to send to fix the problem. And that's why he sent Jesus to this earth. And when the whole thing's said and done, we look at it and we're like, I'm justified in your eyes, God, by Christ's righteousness? How can that be? Because all I had to give was this broken, sinful life. How can it be that that is what you took and you justified? And God says, I'm not justifying you according to your sin. I'm justifying you according to my son's righteousness. And guess what? All the stuff that you brought me, it's as if it never even happened. That, my friends, is a picture of justification. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it invites us into a relationship where we can be justified before God even though we are fallen, sinful, and broken. I don't know about you, but that's a God that I can give my life to, my praise to, my worship to, and everything that I have because he is worthy of it all. God, I thank you this morning for every single person who's here today. God, I know in this house there are a few people that they've been in church their whole life. They know your word pretty well. But God, there will never, ever come a day where we should take for granted what you have done for us. You have reconciled us back to yourself through Jesus. When we were the offender, you didn't wait in your offense. You didn't even choose to be offended. You didn't just stay distant. You continued to be righteous, but you valued this relationship so much that you came to us so that we could be reconciled because you loved us so dearly. I pray, I pray that in this place right now, every single person, before they walk out the doors of this place, they would just have an understanding and a revelation of just how much you love them and desire to be in relationship with them. They might feel like they don't have anything to give you except for their brokenness. And you say, that's cool, I'll take it. Because I'm not going to justify you for your sinfulness. I'm going to justify you based upon my son Jesus' righteousness. We're grateful to you, God, for all that you've done for us. God, you are worthy and deserving of our lives. I pray for people in this place today that feel distant from you, that you would remind them, whisper to their heart right now that they've been reconciled if they will put their faith in Christ. For the people in this place today that feel so broken that they feel as though they're undeserving of your love and your grace, yes, we're undeserving of it, but I pray that you would let them know just how much you're willing to give it to them. Nonetheless, we thank you for your goodness. With heads bowed and eyes closed, before we wrap up our service, we only have a couple more things to do, but this is as important as anything we'll do today. Maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God. You've never said yes to Jesus. Jesus loves you so much, he gave his own life just for the opportunity to know you and to come into relationship with you. If you put your faith in Christ, we can be reconciled back to God because of what Jesus did for us. It's not about magic words. It's not about praying some fancy special words prayer. It's about committing with everything in our heart that we believe that Jesus paid a price for our sins so that we could be forgiven and that God raised him back to life so that we could have new life as well. I'm gonna pray a prayer in just a moment. I wanna invite everybody in the house, if you wanna come back into a relationship with Jesus or do that for the very first time, to pray this prayer with me and just watch God wrap his arms around you and welcome you into his family. Would you repeat these words after me today and mean it with everything you got? Just say, Jesus, 
I thank you for giving your life for me. I believe you're the son of God. I believe that your death was full payment for my sin. So today I choose you. I choose to follow you and surrender to you. I want you to be my savior and be the Lord of my life. From this day forward, I will walk with you into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Now listen, we want to do this out of respect for everybody in the house that might have made a decision. So everybody hang tight till the end of service, okay? If you made a decision to follow Christ today, we want to help you start your journey of faith. We have a simple book we want to give you. It's just a tool to help you get started. It's called The Next Seven Days, and there's two ways you can get it. As soon as service is over, we'll have prayer teams right down here near the front of the stage. Not going to embarrass you or put you on the spot. They just want to pray with you if you need prayer, anybody that needs prayer. But if you made a decision to follow Christ today, Come up to one of them. Let them know you made that decision. We want to give you a book to help you get started in your journey of faith. If you need to go quickly at the end of service, just stop by the next seven days desk. It's right between the glass doors before you exit the building. Our team is there to help you, to pray with you, to give you that book and do anything we can to help you get started in your journey of faith. We are so glad you made that decision. It's the best decision you could ever make. Can we put our hands together and welcome people into God's family today? All right, last thing this morning, this is my opportunity as one of the pastors and on behalf of our staff and our team to simply say thank you. Thank you for your generosity and giving here at the bridge. This is a moment in our service where we just take time to honor God by putting him first with our tithes and with our offerings. And I wanna say a big, big thank you to you for your faithfulness and giving. You know, we say all the time that we're able to do what we do as a church because of people's faithfulness and people's generosity. And that's true. You know, when we do it, we're doing it from a heart of worship and a place of worship that simply says, God, you're my source. God, you're my provider. You've been good to me. So with a heart of gratitude, I give back to you and say, thank you so much for providing for all my needs. Scripture makes it so clear that when we put God first, he opens up the windows of heaven and pours out blessing into our life. And we are grateful to serve a generous God. So thank you for your response and generosity as well. You guys are incredibly faithfully, faithful, generous church. And we are glad that we get to partner with you. So thank you so much. And God bless you for your giving. Hey, I hope that you've been blessed being in church this morning. It's been an awesome day. We're excited for everything that's coming up over the next few weeks. We will see you next Sunday in the house. God bless you. Have a great week.